Hello, my name is Andrew Howard, and welcome to another episode of the Ohio University Press podcast. Today we sit down with author Dr. Sandra Woltschell, Senior Research Associate at Rhodes University in South Africa, to discuss her new book, Children of Hope, The Odyssey of the Oromo Slaves from Ethiopia to South Africa. Sandy, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for contacting me, Andrew, and I'm delighted to be able to talk to you. So first, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself as an author and academic. And I know you talked about this at the beginning of your book, but what originally brought you to this topic? Yes, if I told you the whole long story, we'd be here till Tuesday or whenever. <laughs> so I will tell you, I will, I will give you the precy of um, a rather complex academic career. And because I started off qualifying as a social worker at the University of Cape Town, and uh, when those plans didn't materialize I, and I wanted to continue with history and politics, that wasn't possible either. And then I did a postgraduate diploma at Rhodes University in librarianship and li- library science. And, and that was my career for a good four decades, I have to say. However, I was in a special academic research library focusing on African studies. I was in the Corey Library for Historical Research at Rhodes University. And so was Steepton history was totally even more confirmed in the idea that this is the route I really wanted to go. But of course, when you when you're doing things the wrong way round, instead of getting the pieces of paper and then getting the career, I was doing having the career and then chasing the pieces of paper. So I, I, I did that. And my first experience of the lecture room was actually as a professional, I was asked to lecture in the Department of uh, Library Science, who were asking for input on uh, and training on the weird part of librarianship, that is, when I say weird, it means the non-book materials, which sounds terribly negative, but it's the stuff of archivists and historians, which are the uh, primary documents, the manuscripts and all the stuff that really, really makes libraries fascinating. So I was uh, called on to lecture on manuscripts and maps and photographs and, and other kind of visual art collections. And so that was my first exposure to a lecture situation. But later on, I found I was called on to conduct workshops on various topics, both in my professional capacity and then in local history and in other aspects of history as my career developed. And I was at that time called on to edit a journal that was lodged in the Quarry Library for publication in the then Grahamstown series. And it was a wonderful experience. I had, and I, I had no intention of taking it any further, but then I was persuaded to submit to this um, piece of work for a master's degree in the academic department of history. And we were, but they, they did ask me to undertake the history classes that I had not actually attended because that would be my objective, thwarted objective. So I, I did it the hard way. I did it, the, you know, I did the Southern African history in the senior years and then honors, and and so was working on 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 that. And and 
writing and publishing quite extensively on both professional and historical topics uh, over several decades. And my professional articles were mainly on climate adaptive architecture for libraries and archives, especially in developing countries where the access to the easy switch of the button to turn on the AC is not as readily available because we're developing and we we don't can't afford that luxury so we have to make our buildings work for us and not against it we can't build the beautiful buildings that are absolutely contraindicated for energy conservation and for the um, proper care of, of documents and so we i focused on a uh, a big program uh, rather earlier than the big green library or green buildings movement started quite a lot earlier and that was very satisfying and then later on I, I worked on several I edited and compiled several library guides and so on and things like that but had lots of articles published in international and local journals um, and then later on I worked on several volumes with my late husband Professor Robert Shell. One was on research methodology, the island of research, which was wonderful to work on. It was so exciting and something that we both believed in with a passion. And uh, it, has been, it was very well received. And we both worked on bibliographies of bondage, which was a collection of different bibliographies dealing with different aspects of slavery in the Southern African region, which has been very, very well received. And then I also collaborated with him, or I actually I contributed a few chapters to his From Diaspora to Diorama. So we, we did quite a lot of work together. We worked extremely well together, but we each had our own different paths of um, re research focus. And then last year, I had a, volume, a book published by Rhodes University, which was a biography of the first professor of chemistry there, Sir George Corey, and his name has obviously is the eponymous name of the of the Corey Library for Historical Research. And having been there for thirty years, I was pretty much the obvious person to ask to do this, and so that was launched in October twenty seventeen. And as I said at the beginning, I did everything backwards because I got my master's degree and then my doctorate uh, when I'd more or less finished my my career. But it's because I love it and because I'm passionate about the particular topic of children of hope, which is the, what is the main focus of our uh, talk this afternoon. So what is the story of the Oromo children? What is the context in which they lived? The Oromo children were... Well, the Oromo people, when my story begins, or their story begins, were living in a cluster of small principalities arranged around the, the southern and western region uh, boundaries of old Abyssinia. And they were, they spoke an East Cushitic language and were entirely different from the Amharic and and um, Tigrayan people of Abyssinia. And in fact, the Oromo people 
had long been in conflict with the Amhara, and so they, they weren't exactly pals. And at the time of the, the story opens, which is 1888, King Salimariam, who was king of the Shoa kingdom, which lay between the Oromo lands and the Red Sea coast, was very, very set on achieving, acquiring, ascending the imperial throne, that he should be crowned the next emperor of Abyssinia or Ethiopia, if you wish to keep consistent with today's name for the enlarged territory it became. And to do that, he realized he needed three things. He needed land. He needed to extend his territorial hegemony. And to do that, he expropriated the lands of the Orobo people through his agents in the south and the west. And he also needed money. So his agents enslaved the children, and I will speak more about the nature of the slave trade of the Horn of Africa at that time. Uh, it was a trade of children, not of young adults, a lot of more grown-up adults, uh, young adults, yeah. And he charged a tax for every slave passing through his kingdom, which was very cunning because there was only one way the Oromo children could be taken to reach the Red Sea coast where they would be taken uh, across the Red Sea to the Arabian slave markets, and that was through the kingdom of Shoa. So that was uh, a given that every Oromo slave taken to the coast, for every slave taken there was a tax. And then he charged another tax for every child sold inside his kingdom. And that meant another addition to his, his treasury. And with that money, he was able to buy guns, largely from the French. And that was the third requisite that he needed uh, in order to prove his worth as a candidate for the imperial throne. And that was weaponry. And he actually, as a, as a person, as a, as a human being, he actually loved guns, apparently. And so this, this fulfilled all three of his wishes. So this was the, 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 the kind of political turmoil that surrounded the children and the reason for their enslavement and the reason for the book in the end. And at the same time, the greatest famine, the greatest drought that Ethiopia has ever experienced. It is known as the Great Drought, the Great Famine. The Oromo people were uh, referred to it as the Bara Balea, or the time of suffering. And the crops withered on the, on the stalks. The cattle died. When they weren't dying of starvation, they were dying of the rinderpest, which had been introduced from India by a group of Italian soldiers stationed at Masawa a couple of years earlier. And the infection spread, it seems like in the in the in retrospect and with hindsight from, from our distance to spread like wildfire down the whole continent of Africa, it actually reached Cape Town in 1897. And there were plagues of locusts. There were 
plagues of rats. They were, it, it was biblical, the degree of drought. Um, estimates of losses are that 95% of the cattle were killed, died of rinderpest or of starvation. And estimates of the human population were that between a half, a third and a half of the human population died as well. So it was an absolutely horrendous time for the children because, of course, this was the time that they were being marched through the uh, countryside back and forth. And there was a tremendous amount of domestic enslavement. When I say domestic enslavement, I mean enslavement by local people. And I don't mean the, the kind of uh, Suzanne Myers and Igor uh, uh, Kopitoff's. They, they posit this, that there's a continuum of kinship and slavery, and somewhere along that continuum will be will be where they, they, they would have liked to have seen these children rather than art and art slavery. But this was enslavement. They were sold. There was no kinship involved in it so much as there were kin, kin who, sla- who sold this, their, the children um, to ready buyers. But the, the actual process always involved money or food. You could understand that during this period of extreme privation and starvation during the Bara Balea, that the the, the relative worth of a handful of corn was beyond our comprehension today. There were children who were sold for a handful of peppers. Some were sold for an enormous amount of money for a donkey. Well, not an enormous amount of money, but, but worth a, an animal that was worth a lot of money, which was a donkey. And others were were sold for, for even less. So there was... More of the boys was were sold into into domestic servitude in that way, whereas the girls were enslaved and hurried to the coast because they were regarded as the most desirable of all the slaves that the people who were buying wanted because they were reputed, the Oromo girls were reputed to be the most beautiful in the whole region. They were nubile. They were in their teens, early teens. Some of them were not even in their teens yet. And they would be absorbed into the harems in places like Hodeida or Jeddah and so on across the Red Sea. So it was the whole situation for the Oromo children was extraordinarily stressful. The first one, one group of the, the Oromo children reached the coast eventually, because they all did reach the coast eventually, however long they'd spent in domestic servitude. One group reached the coast in September 1888. They were put aboard three slave dars, and the dars pushed off, heading towards the markets at Hodeida or Jeddah, and their, their dars were intercepted by a ship of the Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy. And therein lies a quite a long tragic tale because the HMS Osprey, the naval ship, 
called on the slave guards to stop and they all did except one and they they eventually used the gardener gun which was very similar to the gatling machine gun and unfortunately the captain of the dar and four of the children were killed but the the survivors were brought on board liberated immediately of course taken to aden which was then under british control and from there they were taken into the care of a mission, the Keith Falconer mission of the Free Church of Scotland, which was at a, an oasis called Sheikh Otman, some 20 kilometers north of Aden. And the problem was that after landing at Aden in September 1888, the photo that appears on the cover of Children of Hope shows a section of that group and it's very, it's very eerie to look into the eyes of those children and realize that by the end of the year, by Christmas in 1888, one-fifth of their number had already died. They were so weakened by what is known as the first passage in slave historiography, which is the time from capture to the coast that, and of course the drought and the famine and ill-treatment, that they were susceptible to absolutely every disease possible. Their immune systems were profoundly compromised and they were dying at a rapid rate. In August of 1889, a smaller group of 14 Aroma children joined that group at Sheikh Otman. And that made up a group of 64 children. And they were, they, the, the, the missionaries there realized that they would have to send the children to a healthier climate so that they had a chance of survival. They couldn't be sent back, of course, because they would just have been re-enslaved and they would have died without question. And so... They looked at other Free Church of Scotland missions on the on the African continent, and they chose the most illustrious of all of them, which happens to be a mission station and missionary institution called Lovedale Institution, which is situated in the Eastern Cape of uh, South Africa, it's almost on the Indian Ocean coast, and it is a very distinguished institution which educated some of our greatest leaders, and in fact, our former president, President Tabo Mbeki, attended Lovedale College. So it was a, um, a chance for them to recover, recuperate, and to receive an education. And by 1909, one third of the, of the 64 children had returned home, either under their own steam, went home individually under their own, on their own resources, or in a group in 1909 together. One third of the group had opted to stay in South Africa for reasons of marriage or career, 
and they decided to put down roots here. So one third of 64 stayed here. And then a the further third, the last third, had sadly died by 1909. So that is basically the, the, the bones of the story. There is, of course, so much more to tell, and that's what's told in the book. So one of the most interesting aspects of your study is its methodology. How does a prosopography differ from a typical biography, and what led you to using this method for your study? Oh, well, let me tell you very quickly what how I actually found out about the Oromo children at all. And there we go back to Rhodes University in the Eastern Cape. And when I was new there, I was familiarizing myself with the old card catalogs. I'm sure nobody listening to this will even remember the old card catalogs, but we certainly had them. It was very much pre-computer days. And in the card catalogue, I discovered several, in fact, many cards for, and I hesitate to use this word because it is pejorative and it's outlawed in Ethiopia since 1974, the Gala slaves, G-A-L-L-A, but it was the name for the Oromo people. They even called themselves Gala, but it actually meant outsiders and unwanted um, you know, on the fringe, and it's, it is it is a derogatory term, and so I, I hesitate to use it, and I apologise to any Aroma people who listen, but I'm telling you, telling the story as I discovered it, and I I had never heard of um, that that adjective. I didn't know who they were, so I asked and was told that in the about two sentences that there was a group of children from the Horn of Africa region who were enslaved and freed and eventually shipped to Laftir. And I was hooked, absolutely immediately hooked. And so having gone through all the, the other publishing and work research that I have recounted already, I, I um, never lost track of the idea. It burned like a little flame in me that one day I would go back and I would write uh, uh, their story. I would research and write their story. And I know I remember photocopying the the interviews, the little stories that were, uh, were told by the children. They were interviewed at Sheikh Otman by two missionaries and three fluent Afano Romo, that is the language of the Oromo people, speakers. And so they they were asked a structured set of questions. So there was obviously a set questionnaire. Each child had was administered and they gave their answers. And the result was a, a set of 64 very structured life narratives. And years later, I showed the photocopies that I'd made of these inter printed interviews to, to Professor Robert Schell. And he read through them carefully. And with his quantitative historian eye, he said, these are wonderful little narratives. But he said, they are so much more. Because 
they are structured, you can code them. And when you code them, you will have a database. And with the database, you can do a quantitative study. And the, the idea of the prosopography was foremost in my mind because a biography represents the story of one human life. In fact, there may be many biographies written about the same person, all of which will be slightly different because other various authors will see different aspects. But what the prosopography does is to examine a group with shared experiences and with a great deal of common of of, of characteristics in common and to use those that analysis to tell something of the group's experience so at one level we have 64 intensely profoundly human stories of the aroma children the which are authentic little african voices told fresh after their release from liberation from slavery not reminiscences, not um, memoirs written years and years and years later with the intervention of hindsight and suggestion that can so easily happen. But these were little children being interviewed in the structured way. And for the first time, we hear the African voices in their individual little biographies, their individual little life narratives. But taken together with those common characteristics codified and and put into a database, I used uh, the SPSS, which is the Statistical Package for the Social Sciences, which is ideally suited to this. What emerged was a biography of the group. I was, what it did allowed was to be able not to say definitively forever that this is exactly what happened to every child slave in Ethiopia or every group. What it did say is that it suggested trends that need to be taken seriously because the one thing that we uh, that has not been explored because there haven't been the records there haven't been records like this before of that first passage. You, uh, most of us will know of, uh, and particularly in the United States, you would be familiar with the middle passage, that, that horrendous oceanic voyage that the slaves took from West Africa across the ocean to the plantations, either in the United States or in the Caribbean or in Brazil. Uh, but here we we have the the passage that preceded the middle passage. I mean, the middle passage suggests that there was a first passage, and this was the first passage. And it has been a very dark area of the unknown for slave historians for uh, up until now, and. There have, of course, been little individual stories that have been told, but they are they are at an individual level. 
this one was a group, and so we can say something about the experiences of Aroma children at that time, in that place, and suggest the trends that, that were followed, which does at least take us one step further along the road of understanding. It shines some light into an hitherto dark, dark um, segment of our knowledge of uh, the, the slave trade and slavery. Uh, and in, the, in this case, it's the enslavement and the slave trade of the Horn of Africa. So it's what the, what the prosopography allowed was, and and the quantitative methodology allowed, was for the creation of multiple variables. I think my, I started off with 192 variables, and uh, you know, including variables like gender and age and so on. And from cross-tabulation and even simple enumeration, it was possible to see very, very clearly the patterns and also to, with the cross-tabs, to release new knowledge by combining things like gender against another variable like how the children were captured or how the children were treated or how many times they ran away or attempted to run away. They were all caught, otherwise we wouldn't have their stories. Uh, or um, whether they, their parents were alive or how many siblings they had. And where one, one particular thing that it revealed was um, their, their social status. Because what was worried me a lot about slavery and, and not knowing anything about the people who were enslaved. We know a lot about the ship's captains and the, and the slave owners and, and so on and the people who wrote about them. But we don't know who the people were who were enslaved. Were they the uh, outcasts of society? Were they on the fringes of society? Were they the near-do-wells or what? No. What this research showed was that there were, in fact, four princesses. You know, I, I mentioned that the Aroma were in, in little prince principalities, and there were four royal daughters who were enslaved, and most of them were slave owners themselves, which was one of the extraordinary things to find out. And then it also it also told us about their, how many livestock they held, how large their property was, whether they had it freehold or whether they had it, uh, what sort of land tenure they they had, and they had large properties and lots of animals and were actually they they were rural agricultural people, and in those terms they were pretty well off, so. Enslavement was not the preserve of the very poor, the outcasts, the, the, the wastrels, and so on. It cut across the whole sector. It was a horizontal excision, incision of the social strata. 
And that was one of the most uh, enjoyable pieces for me uh, was to discover this because it put slavery and, and, and the slave trade in a very different light for me. So and this is what the methodology allowed us to do because allowed me to do rather allowed us to discover us the readers and I was fascinated to discover the the complexity of the slave journeys how long they took much much longer than all the estimates because nobody till now could date the date of capture the children said when they were captured and I could deduce the age of the children at capture because I knew how old they were approximately when they were born. So not the age when they were born, the age they were interviewed. So I was able to um, deduce the year they were born and then also when they were captured because I could measure how long the, each journey was by using GIS and the great slave historian Philip Curtin's useful rule of thumb, which was to use 40 kilometers a day, the pace of a donkey, um, to to work out how far each uh, they would cover in a day, or they could cover in a day. So an, an enormous amount of new knowledge has come out of this, which I hope will be only the first, because... I'm sure this sort of record exists in other missionary repositories and similar repositories where there have been people interested enough in the children to interview them. And that these interviews, which I'm sure must be out there somewhere. Um, I'm pretty sure I know where there are some in, in Kenya, in the church missionary archive there. And they they can be analysed and, and build on this. It's only the first step. We're only, every historian knows we're only another brick and and laying another course of bricks for on which the next generation of historians can 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 build. And but uh, so that is why it was important to use this methodology. Otherwise, it would have been sixty four snapshots in a moment of time. But this is longitudinal prosopography. In other words, it follows the children over time. And I actually have a Gantt chart of the children's lives, the boys first and then the girls, of their lives from birth until death, not just the first passage, because they were fully documented or very well documented from birth until death, through various sources apart from their interviews. So this is this is the, the the fundamental thing that I'm offering in the book is how using a prosopography in with records like this can not only just document what we know from reading those narratives, but what new knowledge emerges from the analyses uh, of of that of those variables, and I hope that helps explain rather at length, but about the methodology. But it is something that I really, really believe was the appropriate way to approach these very significant little African voices 
uh, which without the children we wouldn't have had. You already mentioned the difference. You, you're talking about the differences between, you know, the infamous middle passage of the Atlantic Ocean and the slave trade in East Africa. How does this study change our understanding on how the slave trade worked in East Africa? So much of the research of of the slave trade, because of the lack of these first passage documents, has focused on that middle passage. In other words as I said before, that Atlantic, the big Atlantic voyages. The children, of course, didn't, did experience a middle passage on the Downs, but it lasted hours. Their, their entire period spent on the Downs was really measurable in a matter of hours, maybe a whole day, maybe five hours, maybe, you know, depended which Dow they were on or... Uh, until they were rescued, until they were the the Royal Navy liberated first the Dow, the three Dows in in uh, eighteen eighty eight, and then the Dows in in uh, eighteen eighty nine, and eleven months later. So the the emphasis that has been placed in the past of the horrendous treatment on board, which is true, what my what I my assertion is that. Nobody has factored in the full impact of the first passage on the health and strength and survival of the children of, of the of the slaves before they even got to the coast. There are estimates in in the literature. There's very little little literature on uh, Aroma slave slave trade. Um, Really, a uh, Mercuria Bulcher, Professor Mercuria Bulcher, who was professor of sociology at uh, Maladelin University in Sweden. Uh, I say was because he's retired now, I believe. But he his book on the Aroma in the diaspora points to the fact that about fifty percent, up to fifty percent of the Aroma slaves died between capture and the coast, which gives a, a very different picture of the, where the focus of the studies c- could go in the future. And it, it, it really shines light on that debilitating legacy of the first passage. I mean, for some of the children in group of 64, that legacy stayed with them for life. Um, one child was so brain damaged through whatever mean, whatever caused it. I have several theories in the book about what caused that brain damage. That when they when he got to Lovedale, he never left. And um, I recently published an article called "Trauma and Slavery: the, the Soft, Subtle Shackles of Lovedale." And and uh, dealing with one one particular slave, Kilo Kashi, and he was obviously not in shackles at all. But he was, in a sense, never liber- liberated because he was forever in the thrall of the experience of slavery. It it the legacy for him had left him ineducable. 
and unable to look after himself. And so he, he that's another story, but he it's a very, very human story and a beautiful story. But uh, he became a, a very, very well-known figure in, at Lovedale and, in fact, nationally. When he died, there was a, an obituary for him in the National Sunday newspaper. So he, you know, he was, um, and there were two poems written about him, and a, a full, long essay written by uh, an author, three, two different authors in the Eastern Cape. So yes, the the that middle passage for the Oromo children, the the Horn of Africa people, who were enslaved, the middle passage was really nothing because to cross the Red Sea is does only take hours. It doesn't, it's nothing like the trans-oceanic Atlantic crossing, which was horrendous in its own way. But those slaves that boarded the ships on the west coast of Africa would have undergone, uh, it seems, and this is where I point to the trends, and I think we can extrapolate beyond perhaps the, the Horn of Africa to say that the first we we don't know anything about the the, the length of the passage the first passage on the west coast but the, there's a chance that it was as long and as tortuous as in the horn of africa does this study add any important context that helps readers understand contemporary Oromo struggles in Ethiopia or issues like nationalism, ethnic pluralism, or human rights? Oh, yes, indeed it does. Oh, yes. Um, Because historically, the Oromo have consistently constituted the numerically dominant proportion of the population of today's Ethiopia. Menelik's Ethiopia. But I think because of their numbers, there was a fear of them being too powerful. And so the reaction to that was oppression, repression, and they have been marginalized in a political and and political way. They've been on the economically marginalized and they have um, suffered anyway let me start at the beginning the Oromo in Ethiopia today have their own administrative state of Oromia and most of them live there but they were not allowed for many decades to write in their own language to know their own history there was no self-determination within their own regional state so it didn't operate as a, as it might have as a, um, a sort of federal state in the in the in the United States sense, where the the states operate under their own legislative structures and so on, um, and then there are the overlay overriding um, national laws that apply in some cases. The, that didn't happen, so they've had they they were dominated, and they what we've seen in recent years is massive forced migration of uh, the Oromo. They they the groups fleeing from persecution and oppression 
and of course the the Oromo people themselves have have been protesting and arguing for greater self determination. What exacerbated things most of all recently was the launch of a very misguided Addis Ababa master plan. Now, what Menelik II did, and he, I'm sure he did it totally deliberately, was to establish his palace deep in Oromo territory. And that palace, around that palace, Addis Ababa developed. So Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, is an island in the middle of Oromia. And they have run out of space. And so their policy was to expropriate Aroma lands, which is what we've heard of already, which happened in 1888 when uh, Menelik was expropriating their lands then. The Aroma are an agricultural people. They are people of the land. So their land is their livelihood. And it was being overtaken and taken away from them without any redress. And even if they were given a small payout in some cases, it was not their livelihood. Their livelihood was taken away, their self-respect, their dignity. And so there, there was massive resistance to the pronouncement of this Addis Ababa master plan. And things became very, very ugly. Many Oromo in Oromia were killed. Others were injured. Many more were locked up. The people who were locked up were, of course, the, the usual academics, the, in, you know, the intellectuals, the journalists, the students. And then in the end, it was the farmers themselves because they were coming out onto the streets and protesting. And they didn't have guns or anything like that, but the Ethiopian army did, and it used them. I think the the one that, that perhaps reached audiences in the West because there were no external observers allowed in. So Human Rights Watch disallowed Amnesty International disallowed, international journalists disallowed, the internet was cut off and so that no information from without could go in and no information from within could go out. Uh, so my contact with people inside Oromia was curtailed. But that's beside the point. The point was that the people were being incarcerated and tortured, and many, many, many died. Uh, the worst was, and people might have not, known about it, was the Iricha, the Spring Festival, celebrated in at the end of September in 2016, when the people gathered very peacefully, as they do annually, to celebrate the oneness of nature and man or humanity's place in that oneness as 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 part of the ecology as part of our planet's ecology and the interactivity that we have with with our environment 
it's a beautiful ceremony. And just an interjection, I am very happy to say that I've been, an, I've received an invitation to attend Eritrea in Washington during my United States trip, which is a huge privilege for me and one I'm most honoured to accept and, and I will do my level best to be there. But they were at this and they were, there was a representative of the Oromo people and the Oromo cause speaking about the master plan and the Ethiopian army killed, I think it was 674, 678 Oromo people who were taken completely by surprise. And in the end, the then prime minister had to back down and he withdrew the Addis Ababa master plan and apologised for it. So the master plan has been shelved. And the good news is that in April this year, for the very first time, Ethiopia has an Oromo prime minister, Dr. Abi Ahmed. And he, by all accounts, and in the daily updates that I get about the Oromo people that I receive here, he, in a hundred days, has he's made peace with Eritrea. He has been to visit the Oromo people in the diaspora and asking many of them to come home and help build their, a new, more democratic, peaceful uh, country. And um, it looks as though the tide may be turning. So we, we can only hope. But what, it is all, it's not as though this is all new. The people who tuned in or who'd found out or because of material that I and many others put on social media about the Eritrea massacre didn't come out of the blue. This has been going on since 1888. Not allowed to speak not allowed to write in your own language, not allowed to, they were allowed to speak outside their homes in their own language, not allowed to know their own history, not allowed to, to publish, not allowed to have their Oromo identity. Effectively, it was a, the extermination of the Oromo identity, not the, I'm not talking about a, a, a genocide, but it was killing their identity, which is something very hard for anyone to endure. And since Dr. Abi came in, he has released all, virtually all the political prisoners, people who had been declared terrorists by the previous uh, under the previous regime have gone back peacefully and uh, we can only pray that this is going to continue and that we will see peace in, in that country and justice and justice, peace and justice, not peace that is achieved by the quashing of a people, but peace and justice in according that justice to all the people of Ethiopia. And one marvellous moment that was the moment that probably the largest audience viewed was of a runner in the, the Rio Olympics. He, he, Faisal Alessa, 
he came in second. He got the silver medal. And as he crossed the finishing line, he raised his arms in a simple gesture. He crossed his wrists. So he held his arms up, up above his head with the wrists crossed, which is the symbol of the Oromo in the diaspora, the Oromo who have been maltreated. It is the symbol of suffering. And people asked, what is that gesture? And that man single-handedly drew more public attention in the, in the outside world to what was going on in Ethiopia than any number of reports that could have been written by by the the um by, you know which would not reach as many people so um i think the tide is turning and we can only pray so i was wondering what are the uses that you might see for children of hope in the classroom oh i think i think that comes through in in the in the, in the things that i've said probably already um which are that it it does provide a new dimension to our knowledge of slavery. What it does is it it offers new knowledge and fresh insights into the enslavement pro, uh, process, particularly the experiences in the Horn of Africa. And it offers insights into the personal lives of, of the, each of the children at an individual level, because the in the book there are Oh, it, it, I, there's no way that I could have reproduced extended biographies of each of the children, but there little biographies are there at the back of the book. And so through the children's responses and in later letters and documents written by them, we hear the formerly unheard and untold African voice. And that is very, very important Everybody write, or not everybody, but historians tend to write about Africa. These were the children of Africa. They're African children telling their own stories, having the vehicle of, of their interviews to tell what was going on, uh, which is, uh, was very significant. These are not accounts about the children by third parties. And so... While this is a profoundly, well, while this is a, 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 a the, 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 the book throws light through the prosopography and offers new sights into the process and of enslavement, there is also a profoundly human story behind it, and it's 64 profoundly human stories there which um, I will be developing and publishing uh, more and more while, I, while I'm still on the planet. I'm committed to that. So that's what I believe the classroom will take, is that it is an entirely fresh insight. It is a spotlight on a stage of the enslavement process about which we have known nothing. It has been as dark as, uh, as you can imagine, because we have not had the information to tell us more. So my last question is, what do you hope that readers of Children of Hope take away from your book? Well, I think, first of all, there are not many people who actually know about the Yoruba people. There are a lot of people who 
never heard of the Oromo people. And it's not surprising, I think, given what I've just been talking about, about the the robbing of their identity, that they weren't allowed to have their language and, and, and know their own history inside the country, much less would they be known outside. But this is 40% of the population of Ethiopia speaking. And so what I think that I hope readers take away is a greater understanding, a greater knowledge, and a greater understanding of the Aroma people generally, historically, and their, and, and their treatment up until the present moment of hope. Uh, I, I declared on the 1st of January 2018 that the word for 2018 is hope. And it wasn't entirely predicated on children of hope, but it was in a way but it also was hope for the world and um, hope for the Oromo people. And I think that this is what um, uh, I think comes comes through. The, the second thing I hope that readers will take away from the book is, uh, and I come back to this very, very rare set of, human, of, Africa, of African voices. And we're so used to hearing the victor's voice or the, 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 the outsider's voice. And very rarely do we hear the voices of the oppressed. Um, I think they will, I hope, they'll take away a greater understanding of the first passage about which they will know nothing because we all knew nothing or next to nothing. And by extension, something of the ordeal and the trauma of that experience, the profound trauma of that experience. And I believe, I hope, that the readers might think about and have a greater understanding of the long shadow that the legacy of this experience has cast on ensuing generations and still evident nearly 150 years later, and a greater understanding of, of the trends, as I said, as revealed in the, through the prosopography, of the nature of the enslavement process, slavery and the slave trade in the Horn of Africa. It was very, very different. I mean, the... the um, the children, for example, um, at least four of the boys were castrated. We know that because they, when they were taken on board the ship, they were washed and given new clothes, and um, four of the boys were castrated. Whether those four boys were among these 64, the, 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 well, there were 42 boys out of the 64, is not mentioned, and I think that may have been a missionary 19th century Victorian era delicacy of not wanting to mention that, nor, I might say, was any mention made of the girl's experience. And it is almost impossible that any girl ex uh, escaped being treated as a concubine along the way. It's horrendous. These were, some of them, very small children, girls, Indeed, so those ordeals and the, that ordeal and the and the trauma. Well, oh, I know what I was saying. I was saying that the experience in, in Arabian slavery was, for example, the practice of 
castrating the boys was deliberate so that they would be able to look after the ladies in the harem without being a threat to the prowess of the sultan. And the sultan would have made sure that the, the, the boy children would be highly educated. Some were became teachers, some became military commanders. Can you believe? And they, there, was a, there wasn't a glass ceiling or a chain ceiling for slaves in Arabia. One even landed up as the leader of, of, of one of the sub-principalities. So they, they could. They, a lot of them were trained as teachers and they worked as tutors for the children in the harem. So you know, it was a very different, whereas I'm, I'm sure that you would know, Andrew, and the, and the listeners will know that in the American slave experience, the slaves were not allowed to be taught to read. And, and so it was, this is diametrically different. That is one aspect that I think I only allude to, but what the, this book, the Children of Hope readers will take away, is the legacy and the trauma and have that better, greater understanding of the Oromo people and these Oromo children and the Oromo people in general and their place in Ethiopia today. And I hope that, that we, we, they will have a better future than they've had 150 years of past. My name is Andrew Howard, and you've been listening to Dr. Sandra Woltschell discuss her fascinating new study, Children of Hope, the Odyssey of the Oromo Slaves from Ethiopia to South Africa. Dr. Shell will soon be embarking on a book tour this fall, during which she'll be coming to the United States to promote her book on September 18th at Princeton University, September 22nd in Atlanta, Georgia, in a talk with the Oromo community of Georgia, September 25th to 27th at Stanford University, September 29th at Cal Poly, and October 4th at the Wilberforce Institute of the Study of Slavery and Emancipation, University of Hall in England. Sandy, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew, for this opportunity. Thank you so much. All Ohio University Press and Swallow Press books are available in print and electronic editions and can be ordered from bookstores and online retailers. Please find us at ohioswallow.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.